another pot of coffee is brewing. My fifth cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. It's a new week and I cannot believe, seriously, how much closer we are getting to Christmas. If you listen to this on release day, it is the 10th of December and just over two weeks until Christmas Day. How organised are you feeling? As I record this, you may well be able to hear the faint sound of thread moving through material. And if you can, then that is because I am finally stitching up the crochet present I started for my mum back in February this year just as I started to get really bored with the cold. I'm great at getting the components done, but as much as I love crochet, I really suck at, and I so do not enjoy sewing. I mean, at all. It doesn't help that I can't see straight. That makes it sound like I'm drunk. No, I legitimately have struggles with seeing straight lines, something to do with an astigmatism. Anyway, there is no guest this week, as you may well be able to tell. Come on, you have had two weeks of amazing guests. So it is just me, and I thought long and hard about what I was going to talk about today. I watched Noel a few weeks ago when it was released on Disney+, and I thought, yay, a Christmas film. That'll be something Christmas appropriate. But I know that next week I'm going to be talking about one of my favourite Christmas films of all time with one of my favourite horror and crime podcasters. Yes, I have another guest. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm not. I'm not sorry. It's going to be fantastic. So after a great deal of consideration and telling myself that the Chris Evans adoration season is definitely not going to start until the new year. Yes, you heard that right. I am doing a Chris Evans adoration season and that's going to come several weeks into 2021. It's definitely something for me to look forward to. I decided to talk about one of my favourite rom-coms, Wimbledon. Huge congrats here have to go to Andrew Lees, who was the first to correctly guess using my wonderfully fantastic clues that it is indeed Wimbledon. There is also a book, To the Moon and Back, by Jill Mansell. Yes, I know I have mentioned this book a few times. I've mentioned on my Twitter that I am now into the reading what I love phase of my Goodreads year. And I know that I have talked about this on a past podcast but I really want to do the book the justice it deserves. And of course, after working a 12-day week last week, yes, 12 full days, I am exhausted. My mental health has not exactly taken a nosedive, but it's been really hard going. How that happened is a tale in itself. So that's all to come. However, before I get into any of that, it's time for yet another instalment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. Because seriously... (laughs) They keep on just coming. I'm on a plane going somewhere, and for some reason, I'm not questioning my luck here, I'm sitting in first class. I've only ever done that once, and that's because the plane I was on previous to that nearly crashed. But we don't need to go there. I'm sitting in a really wide, comfortable seat, next to someone who is nodding their head rather enthusiastically to something they're listening to on their headphones. Hopefully it's not before coffee. 
I get the feeling that wherever we're going, we've been on the plane for quite a long time, the sun's going down, people further down the plane are asleep, and I'm halfway through watching a film, though I haven't got a single clue what it is. I try and engage the guy sitting next to me in a bit of conversation, but he, though he occasionally lifts his headphones away from his ears, he doesn't respond with much more than a few grunts or the occasional nod. Being honest, I'm a really bad flyer though I am normally more startled by the judder of the landing gear when it rises and lowers than anything else. I try really hard not to freak out on planes, mostly because I have been on a plane where someone freaked out worse than I was feeling and I noticed the effect that it had on the people around them. When somebody starts shouting, oh my god, we're going to crash, we're going to crash, you know that you aren't the worst off on the plane. Anyway, thanks to a couple of doses of Valium, drinking no alcohol on the flight and a few good books. I tend to be okay, but then that is due to the medication. And also have to be honest, it's the only time I ever drink water with zero additives. So no squash or I think in the States you would call it Kool-Aid, though it is liquid. So I'm watching a film and my attention isn't quite taken with it. When all of a sudden, a few rows back, a row starts between two people and the seats are moving and people are waking up and they may be a little bit confused by the ruckus being caused by this argument. I'm not sure what it's about, but they are getting louder until a couple of the cabin crew who are dressed in dark suits, think men in black (laughs) with a little bit of sparkle, they go up to the warring couple and quite loudly tell them if they don't control themselves, the captain will turn the plane around. Now, here's where you have to know it's a dream, because seriously, they actually do that whole hand movement to tell this arguing couple, he'll turn the plane around. It's quite funny. They're treating these passengers like unruly children on a car trip. Anyway, a few minutes later, these people are still arguing, and we find ourselves making a descent into Barcelona airport. Now, I've never been there, so I have no idea why Barcelona And what happens next makes me wonder so much more. So we land in Barcelona and just like in an episode of Cabin Pressure, which I absolutely love, by the way, and is probably my favourite Benedict Cumberbatch role, for some reason I end up with the pilot and two of the cabin crew heading out to find out where the tanker with our fuel has got to. Now, I don't know why we need fuel because obviously we had enough fuel to get to wherever we were going, but that's neither here nor there. I've never been to Barcelona, as I've previously said, and therefore I've never been to Barcelona Airport. Does Barcelona have an airport? So off we head and we find ourselves at this tiny, and by tiny I mean minute, newsagents. You may have seen my mentions of my mortification at my appalling use of Franglais, or Franglish, and it really is dreadful. I put on an awful fake French accent and I say, (laughs) we are... are uh, looking for the tanker petrol? Is it here? When even in my dream I was aware that I should have said, Pouvez-vous nous aider? Nous recherchons un pétrolier. Est-il ici? The worst thing is, I have no idea why I'm speaking French in Spain in the first place. I mean, seriously, why would I not be speaking Spanish? And in that case, I should have said, Puede. Ayudarnos, estamos buscando un camión cisterna de gasolina, está aquí. 
Basically, for those of you who are like the rest of my family, I essentially just said, can you help us? We're looking for a petrol, a petrol tanker. Is it here? This odd and very imbalanced conversation in Franglish continues for a while. And it turns out that we are at this particular location because there is a massive car park behind this single <laughs> tiny little news agents. And it's on its own road where there is nothing but car parks and this one building. It was frustrating to wake up with the thought in my head that I should have attempted to speak French properly rather that, than that absolutely horrendous Franglish. If anyone has seen Allo Allo, I sounded a little bit like Michelle from The French Resistance. Especially, it's especially galling when I can actually speak French. So... That was the weirdness for the week. This dream was odd in that I had two different levels of consciousness in my dream. I was speaking with the stereotypical French accent, while my thoughts were all about, why are you doing this? At some point, I think I even apologised. So now that I have entertained you with my odd subconscious thoughts for the week... Let's move on to the film that I really want to talk about. It's one of my favourites of the genre. Uh, okay, so I have a fair few favourites in this particular genre, and parts of it were even filmed not that far from where I currently live. Wimbledon is as English as the Queen, though we haven't actually produced that many winners in the past 125 years. But being honest, I am not actually a massive fan of watching tennis. And strangely enough, I had this conversation with a friend on Sunday. I was telling her that I'd been watching Wimbledon and I'd planned to talk about it in my podcast. And she said, I haven't seen that because I don't like tennis. And I was trying to explain to her that it's not really about the tennis. It's just the backdrop. I'm not a massive fan of watching tennis, at least not since the 1980s when it was all Attitude, Pat Cash, John McEnroe and stretchy headbands. Yes, I loved that particular fashion trend. Peter Colt is a British player, a wild card entry into the tournament, and he's actually played by a pre-MCU Paul Bettany. And I love him in this role. He's awkward, frustrated. He's a tennis player who is headed to retirement at 32, having never won a single match at Wimbledon. In fact, he's so ready to retire that he's accepted a position as a tennis professional at a country club managed by Ian Frazier, who is played by Robert Lindsay. Many of you in the UK will probably recognise him from the long-running sitcom My Family. Peter's best friend in the tennis world, Dieter, is played by an almost unrecognisable Nikolai Kostovaldau. In fact, I didn't even recognise him. I had to look up who he was. You know, Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. I do wish I had been able to force myself to watch past the first few episodes of that in season one, but I just couldn't and I don't think I'm going to bother now as it's finished. Porn fan and gambling addict Carl who loves to bet against his brother winning anything, is played by a very young-looking James McAvoy. So this film is definitely not one that you're going to watch and think, I don't recognise that person. It even has John Favreau in it, you know, Happy from the MCU. When Peter meets Lizzie for the first time, their meet-cute is a little less cute and more nude scene through misted glass. Peter has mistakenly been given the key to another player's suite at the hotel and he walks in on Lizzie Bradbury, played by post-bring-it-on and Spider-Man actress Kirsten Dunst, when she's in the shower. 
Lizzie is a seeded and talented American tennis star, though this is her first Wimbledon. She's provocative and makes no bones about the fact that she finds Peter attractive and interesting. After the mess with their rooms, it was not Peter's hotel room after all, is all sorted out, he heads to the courts to practice his serve, where he again encounters Lizzie. She flirts with him quite obviously and he flirts back and it's all quite cute really. They're flirting while he is serving tennis balls at 100 miles an hour to hit these ball tubes I suppose you'd call them. They look like Pringle tubes but they contain tennis balls. I'm not, I, you can't tell, I have no interest in sport whatsoever. Lizzie encourages him to try and hit the ball tubes he's lined up on the other side of the court and if he makes any of them she says she'll have dinner with him. Of course, as with most rom-coms from the early 2000s, she also tells him that she'll sleep with him just as he's making another shot, and this causes him to miss, with the ball rebounding off a nearby spectator, who may well also be an umpire, but I don't know. He's wearing some kind of uniform. It's never very clear how old Lizzie actually is, though we know definitively that Peter is 32. And Lizzie is there with her overprotective and very domineering tennis coach, who also happens to be her father. He's played by Sam Neill from Jurassic Park and plenty of other films in the last 20 years. He doesn't approve of Lizzie's flirting, and he makes it very clear to Peter that she is there to just win the tournament at any cost. He isn't willing to let anything interfere with that. Lizzie is a bit of a rebel and it seems that she also has something of a temper and a reputation. She has a an outburst on the court when she's playing her first match and it is very reminiscent of John McEnroe in the 80s who coincidentally is also in the film playing himself as a commentator for one of the various channels that are reporting on Wimbledon. Oh, I don't know why I'm hesitating so much over this. I've watched this film so many times, I know it off by heart. Of course, the path of true love ne'er did run smooth. And though Peter is now, courtesy of a healthy sex life and the fact that Lizzie energises and encourages him, something we see quite often, he'll be flagging slightly and all of a sudden Lizzie will sharp at his match and he gets a second wind. He's having the best tournament of his career but Lizzie's game is definitely suffering. And when she is eliminated from the tournament, she has a huge row with Peter, accusing him of only coming to see her so they can have sex, so he has the drive to win his next game. It's quite an unfair accusation, but at the same time, you can see where she's coming from because she's just lost and he immediately turns up and the first thing he's talking about is the fact that he has another match to play. And she takes it as, well, you've only come, you've only turned up here to have sex with me so that you can carry on winning. Her ex-boyfriend, Lizzie's ex-boyfriend or lover or whatever you want to call him, is another young American tennis player who Peter is going to encounter on the court. Jake Hammond. He's played by Austin Nichols, who in the early 2000s was always cast as the arrogant rich boy because in this same year he was also playing the arrogant rich boy in The Day After Tomorrow with Jake Gyllenhaal. Peter's actually done it. He makes the final and obviously the argument with Lizzie hadn't done him any favours, hadn't done her any favours. He is 
on the court struggling because he's playing someone who's much younger than him, someone who has a far more determination and drive and is actually quite a nasty person. He doesn't care who he steps on to get to the top. So Lizzie is on her way back to the States because she's licking her wounds. Her dad is frustrated with her for losing, but at the same time, she's his daughter and he cares about her. They're at the airport and Lizzie catches some of the match. And she can tell that Peter is struggling. So all she needs to do is go home and it will all be over. But there is obviously more than just attraction between them because she heads back to Wimbledon. I'm not sure. (laughs) In reality, I don't know how long it takes to get from Heathrow Airport to Wimbledon even by car by car by train or anything I've never been to Wimbledon because I've said previously not a massive fan of tennis and I have not had the luxury of affording a taxi to go to Heathrow Airport and even if I did I live on the south coast not in London so Lizzie heads back from the airport and gets there just in time to see Peter before he goes back for the second half of the game. He is invigorated when he returns to the court. God knows what they were doing in that changing room. But he is the underdog and he wins. Wow, that sounds so dull. But it is more their relationship and the fact that it was built around such a tense time in both of their lives. Her first tournament, his last tournament. And what I really liked about the film wasn't so much that it was tennis-based, because don't care. It was filmed in some parts quite locally. Again, not so much of a bother to me. It was the fact that this film actually had a bloody epilogue. Seriously, this film had closure. It didn't just go... And they walked off into the sunset together, happily ever after. You actually saw them a few years later on the tennis court where they had had a bit of a fake tennis game on their first proper date with two children playing tennis and they are their children. He says, oh, Lizzie won Wimbledon. She won the American Open. She did it twice. And they are clearly still together. And that is what I love about this film. I know it sounds strange. I like the fact that I I don't only get told, oh, happily ever after here, (laughs) the end. I actually get to see it. And though there are, as I said, loads of rom-coms I love, this one is one of my favourites because I do see how it ends. Okay, so you could say, well, five years down the line, they might get a divorce. But the same could be said for anyone. When you watch most rom-coms, it ends with a glimpse through the window as they're kissing and having a drink or whatever. And then there is nothing more. That's it. Lights go down, credits come up, and that's it. But with this one, you get a proper ending. They have their children, they have their family. She won her tournaments after all of that. And they are still together. So that's why I like Wimbledon, because it has that proper closure. 
I like to share the love and this week I am going to be promoting The Paul and Griff Show, a fantastic movie podcast hosted by two amazing guys. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Griff. And we're the hosts of The Paul and Griff Show. The show where we talk movies. We dissect movie franchises. We also bring you film news. And don't forget about those top sixes. Oh yes, in each episode we rank a topical top six. You can find us on Instagram at Paul and Griff Show. Or Twitter on Paul and Griff Show. And don't forget YouTube and Facebook. And more importantly, all major podcast platforms. They're on my playlist every single Tuesday, so why not head over to listen to them after you've listened to the rest of this episode. Now I've talked about what I have watched this week, and wow, did I ramble, I'm so sorry. I'm now going to look at what's coming up on the UK streaming services. We're not quite at Christmas yet, there's a few more weeks to go, but that doesn't mean things aren't heating up in the big holiday run-up. Surprisingly, there is actually some content that's not Christmas themed. On Netflix, there is a fair amount of content. On the 11th, we have a musical starring actors from stage and screen, including Meryl Streep and James Corden, latter enough for me not to watch, The Prom, as well as Giving Voice, a documentary all about the August Wilson monologue competition. Wow, try and say that fast. Which gives children the opportunity to audition for parts on Broadway. So it seems there's something of a theme on the 11th, and I know that Drew and Danny from It's a Musical podcast are going to be looking into the prom, as they've already announced their episodes in the run-up to the holidays. On the 13th, the latest and probably best, if reviews are anything to go by, film from the Transformers franchise, Bumblebee, is released, as well as the oddly charming Welcome to Marwyn, which stars Steve Carell, who was in... Crazy Stupid Love, which I talked about last week. The following day, on the 14th, the list is just a tiny bit longer with the addition of A California Christmas, Hard Kill, which is a premiere starring Bruce Willis, Blackwater Abyss, and a ballet mystery series called Tiny Pretty Things. On the 16th of December, we see the release of a drama all about the Yorkshire Ripper. Personally, I feel this is pretty poor timing and though it will be on the watch list of quite a few it definitely will not be on mine mostly because I think I remember the case in the press when he was arrested and all of the stuff around his victims and I just can't I just can't do it however there is also another probably short-lived tv series on called how to ruin christmas That makes its premiere on the 16th as well, so that will be going on my list instead. I have to say, finding out what is airing on Amazon Prime in the UK is like pulling teeth. No joke, I think I apologise for anybody in the UK who was looking for True Lies the other week. That turns out to have been on US services, not on UK, so I'm really sorry. However, we do have Die Hard too. So... There is definitely a lot of football. (laughs) I don't know what to say about that. There is a lot of football, but then if that's not your thing, on the 11th, 
Rachel Brosnahan, who is also Mrs. Maisel, is in a new Amazon film called I'm Your Woman. And on the 15th, we get the whole Matrix trilogy. I have to say that in the four years I've had Amazon Prime, this is the first time that I've seen all three of them on there. Disney Plus has gone a little quiet again after a week which saw two new film releases, though it does seem that they simply aren't shouting very loudly about what they're adding to the platform. On the 11th, they're releasing another biographical tearjerker in the form of Safety, which is about American football. And on the same day, we have the Disney Channel epic holiday showdown, which from the photos I've seen looks as though it's going to be a Disney Channel TV show Christmas Carol. And yet another tongue twister arrives with no announcement. I have to talk books this week, if only because it has been a while. I'm so sorry. And I have been reading up a storm as I try to get through my 2020 reading challenge on Goodreads. I have seen so many people on the platform easily surpass 100, if not more. But I am just getting close to my target of 64. I go through weeks where I will read so much I don't do anything else. But then there are those weeks where I look at the Kindle or the pile of TBR that are in my bedroom and I think, no, not today. Not today then turns into not this week. And before I know it, we're in the next month and I haven't read a single book for four weeks. This year has seen the release of some incredible books from some of my favourite authors. And I've also caught up with some of the books that have been on my TBR for literally years. Here I'm thinking about the Invisible Library series by Genevieve Cogman, which I think I bought the first two books for around four years ago. Anyway, as we reach the end of the year, it is the time for books I love. Work and life in general are so stressful, which I will get into in a bit. So I pick up the books by authors I love and I read them. Sure, a lot of them are rereads, but they are still reading. This week in particular has been one for revisiting an old favourite of the chiclet variety. Sometimes I do wish that they would find a better name for the genre. Contemporary romance doesn't really fit and chiclet can be seen as a little bit insulting perhaps. These books have depth and substance and they make me cry and they really make me feel for the characters. Back in 2019, long before Not Before Coffee was a twinkle in my eye, I spoke about this particular book on another podcast, but I really don't feel as though when we talked about it, we did the story or the characters any justice. So I want to give it the chance to shine. And this is what I feel it should have had originally. To the Moon and Back is from British author Jill Mansell. Okay, one of my favourites, and I know I say this quite a lot, I do have a lot of favourite authors. Is that a bad thing? She released it back on my birthday in 2011. So do your research and you might well find out what my birth date is. Not the year, but the date. It's the story of Ellie Kendall. She has it all, a happy marriage, a home, a job, and then in one single night, that's all taken away from her. Sure, she still has the job in the flat, but it's not the same after her husband, Jamie, sadly and suddenly dies in a car accident, which his best friend Todd survives. Ellie is devastated at the loss of her husband. They had plans, they were young, vibrant, and she just can't let go. Her flat becomes a hellhole, though it's not of her own making, when unpleasant tenants move in and the neighbourhood starts to go downhill. 
Working her way through her grief as well as she can, Ellie survives. She continues working in her job, continues to live in the flat that was once the future she was sharing with Jamie, and all the while things just grow worse until one day, her father-in-law Tony, who is a well-respected and wealthy actor, tells her that enough is enough. He purchases a flat in Primrose Hill and life moves on. I should clarify here, Ellie moves into the flat. Tony buys it because he needs a home base for when he's in the UK, but he doesn't want to leave it empty all the time he's not there. I have to say there is one thing that I always find a bit strange about this novel, though it really doesn't detract from the fact that I enjoy it, and that is Ellie's family, or rather her lack of it. She's just lost her husband, but no one visits, no mention of parents or siblings or even grandparents, cousins, aunts or uncles. The fact that she is completely alone in the world but for her father-in-law, who is also processing grief having lost his, his son, is really tragic and makes her loss even more so. Her colleagues mean well. Todd tries to reach out, but Ellie needs to blame someone and that someone has to be Todd. He was in the same car as Jamie and Jamie didn't survive. Having moved to a new flat where there is no violence or threats from her unruly neighbours, Ellie starts to settle in. She needs to try and at least put some of the past behind her. And while she's still clinging to it, that's really difficult. She has conversations with her dead husband that are so real, you could be forgiven for thinking that he was still around. Things change more when she meets Rue, a retired pop star who lives in a block of flats across the road from her. She likes the anonymous life, though partly because she's in a relationship doomed to fail with a married man. I have to say there is no shying away from the reality that cheating happens in this book. But it isn't glossed over and made, oh, well, that's okay because his wife's horrible or anything else. Rue actually meets her, her paramour's wife and realises that the guy she's with is not who she thinks he is. With the help of Rue, Ellie finds a job working for wealthy investor Zach McLaren. And she actually leaves her job because she has a pretty disastrous first date with her boss. I recommend you do not do this. (laughs) No matter whether he's gorgeous or not, don't do it. And because of these changes she starts to instigate in her life, she starts to change and grow. It's not, she's never going to forget her husband, but she knows that Jamie wouldn't want her to stagnate and be alone forever. So much happens in this book. Seriously, there are so many relationships, so many friendships. There aren't loads and loads of characters, that's the thing. The characters are all treated the same way. They're all important. They all have their own storylines, their own characteristics, and they are one-dimensional. There's no denying that Ellie is the core character, but as with every single book I read in this genre, there are no real background characters. Every single one has a purpose, whether it's the ageing secretary who is retiring and leads to Ellie getting the job with Zach, or people Ellie worked with before she moved. Ellie, Rue, Zach, Todd, Tony and Martha, who I'm not going to tell you about because I think you should read the book, all have their own parts to play in the story. No one is forgotten, but it's not exactly tied up with a beautiful neat bow at the end. Of course, Ellie gets her happily. As I mentioned about Wimbledon, this is not her happily ever after. The way this book is written, it's down to you as to whether there is the ever after or not.
So that's what I've been reading this week. For some reason, the idea of another book that made me cry was actually what I wanted because I have to punish myself. And that's what I got, though there was plenty of laughter through those tears. What have you been reading this week? Let me know in the comments, post something below and share what you've been reading because I'm always looking for new authors. Okay, we get to the horrible bit, the mental health. As I said previously, I worked a very, very long week and I sympathise with anybody who works shifts like the one I finished last Friday, which was 12 days. I've never been so tired. But I think it affected my temper, my sleep pattern and for the first time ever I discovered that diabetics can have chronic headaches courtesy of their diabetes never had one before yesterday I had a headache so bad that I couldn't record it was like a vice was literally squashing my skull it was so painful I felt sick I felt tired I couldn't see properly so I went to bed so I apologise if this sounds like it's been rushed in any way whatsoever. I've mentioned the relationship I have with my mum several times on this show and how it has a detrimental effect on my mental health at times. We've been talking because obviously with this stupid lockdown rule of you can only spend five days with your family over Christmas and courtesy of my work I've literally got three days of it. I was talking to my mum about everything and I said to her that if it weren't for the fact that we had Christmas this year, I would probably not have made it to the new year. And I'm being sincere, I've had enough, I am constantly tired, constantly stressed, I cry at the literal drop of a hat. Seriously, I dropped something in the bathroom the other day, not breakable, not expensive, was absolutely fine. It bounced off the side of the bath and I broke into absolute hysterical tears. Not hysterical as in ha ha ha, but hysterical as I couldn't stop. I just couldn't take it. And I said to, when I said this to my mum, she said, oh, well, all you need to do is get out of the house more. Meet people. It's like, who am I meant to meet? I live alone. All my friends have got family. They've got children or grandchildren they're busy they don't necessarily live anywhere near me they're hardly going to risk their families by coming to see me and I'm getting told well go out for a walk and meet people people aren't stopping the way they used to you don't walk into a coffee shop and see people sitting on their own and go and join them because you can't do that anymore I can't go to the library anymore, not the way I used to, partially because our library is currently being refurbished and it's in a temporary building that's a dance school, but also because people aren't so open to that kind of meet and greet anymore. I have felt, despite being, and I have said, I am a hermit, I do like my own company a lot, but I have felt so isolated in the last couple of months far more so than I did when this lockdown started because at the start of lockdown there was a little bit of hope 
And then we knew what was happening and I started to feel trapped, imprisoned in this little bubble of space. When they announced bubbles, my mum was immediately added to my sister's bubble, even though my sister has a household of six people. My brother has his partner and because of the nature of my brother's work, it's not so safe for them to include my mum in a bubble with them, though they do see her far more frequently than I do, courtesy of the fact that they both drive. I have seen people... I saw one of my friends once when I had to take my cat to the vets for her vaccinations and her annual checkup. I saw my... Mum, my sister and her family when my niece was leaving for university and then I saw my brother, my sister, my niece, my mum and my brother's partner back in September and that was the last time I saw people. So when my mum says go out and meet people on a walk you'll feel so much better I feel as though she doesn't quite understand A, social anxiety, B, chronic depression and C, I think she's still in denial about the fact that there is something something mentally wrong with me. Wow, that sounded so desperate. But you, I don't know quite how to explain how I feel. But when I had that conversation with her, I was reminded so much of the conversations we had when I was first diagnosed with the, what they at that time called manic depression. I was reminded of the dismissal, the, oh, well, there's no reason for you to feel like this. The lack of understanding about the fact that it's not a situational thing. I have no control over it. And... It left me feeling really alone. I'm going to go and spend three days at Christmas with my family because I don't want to be alone. I know that it will take me several days to recover from spending time with the people that I'm going to be with. But at the same time, if I don't spend that time with them, I am probably going to be in a very very bad place in the beginning of the new year and that I do not want. I'm so sorry to make it sound incredibly low and depressing but I promise an update on my mental health and as bitty as it is and as confusing as it sounds sometimes, welcome to my brain. I don't like the visit, I'm sure you don't either but I really appreciate the fact that I know if I say something Somebody out there is listening, even if they can't do anything about it. It makes me feel not so alone. And on that note, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I release a new one every single week. So if you like what you hear and it hasn't made you really, really depressed, why not share it with your friends and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there, such as iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or over on Facebook at Not Before Coffee Podcast. Well, I definitely need another cup of coffee, probably something stronger. 
as I haven't had enough of anything. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on and possibly pour a glass of wine. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>